And some people sort of throw up their hands and say, well, everybody has an agenda. So, you, you know, you can't trust anybody. You should just pick whatever confirms your existing biases. Um, but the truth is like, some people do have a much stronger agenda than others. And there are certain actors who are, are actively trying to recognize their own agendas and put it aside and not let it influence their writing as opposed to embracing their agendas and you know, using it to, to propel all the information that they share with us. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist, with me, Josh Hamilton. Jennifer Rauch, the author of Slow Media, Why Slow is Satisfying, Sustainable, and Smart, was my guest on today's show. I came across her work when researching the idea of slow media. I've been reading a lot this year on the problems with the speed of modern technology and the modern news cycle, so I was really interested in talking to someone who takes a fairly unique perspective in trying to reject as much as possible this 24-hour news cycle and our Twitter and Facebook-based news consumption. We discussed the need to deliberately choose your news sources, fake news, misinformation, and why slow media can help us all gain more perspective and understanding of the world we inhabit. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the links in the description below. So, here's Jennifer. But anyway, the, the smoking on trains is not, not important. We're here to talk about the, the, the media. Yes, of course. <laughs> so, uh, Jennifer, welcome to my show. Thanks for agreeing to talk to me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, well, we finally got you on. It was a little, little, little time coming, but um, worth yeah. the wait, I hope. Appropriately slow. That's always <laughs> my fallback excuse. <laughs> oh, I might start stealing that. That's an excellent excuse for being low for, late for everything. <laughs> and you're in Belfast, right? Yeah, Belfast. Does anybody ever call it Bell Slow? No. <laughs> no. No, maybe we should try that. I mean, yeah. there's, a, there's a drink that this is completely off topic, but there's a, like an alcoholic drink that we used to, well, I, I didn't really drink it very much, but some of my friends became really obsessed with it. It's called Buckfast. Oh. Uh, um, that was really famous there, but no one ever called it Buck Slow. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you have been, how long have you been uh, working or advocating at least for, for the idea of slow media? Oh, it's been over a decade now. Yeah, the idea came to me back in, I think about 2009, I started working on this project. Um, and one of the fun things for me was that I thought it was, you know, the stroke of genius that I was having. But um, over the next couple of years, I started noticing that a lot of people were having a similar conversation, perhaps not surprisingly with the influence that, you know, slow food has had on our culture directly or indirectly over the past generation or so. Mm. I mean, I had I had uh, Paula McIntyre, who's head of uh, Slow Food in Northern Ireland. She was really interesting to talk to. But these are only ideas that I've 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 come across uh, this year, like really like in, in in earnest, where I've like looked into it. So so for people who maybe haven't um, come across the term slow media, what does it mean? Well, you could go back a little further and say that it's part of the slow philosophy movement. And the idea, of course, there isn't necessarily that, you know, fast is bad. 
um, but that there is a, a right pace for everything. The, the Italians call it il tempo giusto. And the idea is that, you know, we enjoy life when we sort of uh, move between speeds, that we can't appreciate fast without slow, slow without fast. Um, and that just going, you know, top speed all of the time doesn't enable you to enjoy life as much as you would if you, you know, varied your speeds a bit more. And indeed that you don't enjoy going fast as much unless you have a period of slow as an interval uh, along with it. So in regards to slow media, um, I guess one of the driving principles is less is more. That by having better quality media experiences in terms of production as well as consumption, um, that you're going to get more out of the experience, that it, it'll be deeper, it'll be more meaningful. And to some extent, it's just about paying attention, being mindful of where you are and what you're doing at any given time, whether it's eating food or reading a novel or watching a movie. Mm. I mean, that's definitely an idea I've come across in, in quite a lot of writing this year. I've been trying to understand a little bit about how the, the pandemic and the lockdown itself is going gonna, is gonna to change people or change the way we look at a lot of things. And I know it's a, it's a really obvious thing that, that a lot of people have talked about, but, but I've really been trying to figure out like what it is or what's, what, what, it, what it will do to people. Like what, because, I mean, you talked there about the, the speed of life, like the, the different sort of that you can't appreciate fast without slow in, in, in a lot of avenues, basically probably every avenue of life. Yeah. And that I've been trying to like figure out what that just like stop was, is going to do to people. Cause you, you, especially the last five years in, in, or at least 10 years, you know, you can depending on how long you've been, I don't know, immersed in the social media life of, of the 21st century like is it felt very kind of relentless it was just coming at you and you were you were like tearing down this train track where you <laughs> just strapped in for the crazy crazy ride that you were going to have to sort yeah. of experience and and that's very much what like I was I was just curious as to what that stop was going to do when everyone like just was forced to kind of pause and stay inside and 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 not be constantly well I mean maybe some people were constantly tuned in with with COVID but um, we can get yeah. to why that's probably a good example of why slow media is useful but I mean, it's, it's something I've been coming across more, more and more. Like, do you, do you feel that, that it's that this idea of like slow or, or the, the kind of minimalism movement, do you think that's really like picked up a lot of traction in the last few years? Yeah. I mean, the pandemic is a great example. There was kind of this beautiful moment for me at the beginning of it where there was a serious sort of reevaluation or reckoning happening with people and the productivity that they had been expecting of themselves and of other people. So I thought it was terrific when people were sort of forced to take this, uh, this pause. And in a lot of cases, people realized that there were dimensions of life that they were missing out of. And in a lot of cases, it was these slower ones. Um, things like um, reading books or baking bread or taking walks. And I remember just being so excited that a lot of people were rediscovering um, parts of their lives that maybe they had left behind in you know, this onward rush that, that we've been experiencing over the past five or 10 years. I mean, really almost a generation now. Um, so I was really excited to see some of the ways that people were coping with the, the shutdown in, in productive ways. In some ways, I'm a little bit disappointed that we've 
at least in America, I don't know if this is, is true everywhere, that there's been this idea that we have to get back to normal. And for me, you know, there were a lot of things about normal that are maybe not desirable that I don't want to retrieve. So while I'm glad that the pandemic, you know, might be ending soon and that vaccines are on the way, and I certainly, you know, am feeling good about a lot of the, the direction that things are moving in now, at the same time, I wish we could keep some of the, the positive slower um, aspects. I mean, even things like, you know, people have been getting puppies in my neighborhood. There are three new dogs on my block and people take time to go out and walk their dogs every day. And that that lends, you know, a certain um, variability and speed to, to their day. At the same time, there's also been a reappreciation of fast and of digital, right? You know, here we are on Zoom. I've been teaching on Zoom for, you know, eight months now. Um, so that it helps you kind of see that both are, both are necessary and both are good and both have different things to offer us. And it's a question of just reaching the right balance. Mm. I've definitely, back, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say to your point about minimalism, I'm really interested in that conversation that my book was actually born as sort of a manifesto called Digital Enough. And my idea in there was that through the beginning of the 21st century, the idea was that you know, the more internet, the better. The more that you were online, the everything had to be, you know, that was offline had to have a digital uh, replacement sort of. Um, so I was sort of standing up and saying, you know, digital maximalism isn't necessarily the way that we want to go here. There are some things that should be digital or fast. There's, there are other things that shouldn't necessarily. So my idea was kind of moderation. I actually called it digital satisficing. Um, but I think that, you know, moderation is a hard sell, particularly in American culture. People want the most or the least. They don't want to just have, you know, the appropriate amount of things. It's just not quite as sexy. Mm -hmm. um, so you were alluding earlier to this movement towards digital minimalism and people have ideas about, you know, the four hour work week. And it's like, well, most people I know are working 60 or 80 hours a week and arguably that's not good. Is four hours the answer? Probably not, but you know, 30, 40 someplace in between might be, you know, just right for a lot of us. Hmm. I mean, Tim Ferriss's book was, was uh, admittedly from him titled based on like they did a whole bunch of Google AdWords tests and the four hour work week was the title that got the most clicks. And that's why he yeah. went with it. Um, because like the concept is four hours a week, but uh, basically this entire book is him saying, don't try and live my life. Just like figure out what's good for you from what I've done and then do, do what, what I want. But I really, really liked it. Are you familiar with the work of, of Cal Newport? I am. Yeah. He's terrific. Yeah. His book, I feel was sort of um, being developed in parallel to mine that at the end he starts talking about some of the slow stuff. And at the end of mine, I start talking about some of the digital minimalism. So I think that, you know, we're sort of a uh, Venn diagrams in a way with an overlapping area in the middle. Yeah. I mean, something that he, he speaks to a lot in, in digital minimalism, um, which, which is really, I loved it. I, I did my own digital declutter afterwards and really enjoyed it. Um, it's been, it's been great. I feel, I feel like I have more time after this year for like human things, like, like you mentioned, like baking bread or just cooking generally, um, gardening or, or like growing a plant or something, but just reading and like spending time with people. I feel like you've got the, the, one of the things that, that we, we've kind of rediscovered is, is maybe instead of sitting on the bus on the way to work, 
uh, that you're sitting at home and that 45 minutes or half an hour, whatever, that would normally be spent kind of like idly flipping through Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or something like that is now has, was you kind of sitting around the house and you're like, well, I don't want to just sit here all day like I did yesterday on my phone. And all of a sudden, like you realize that when you set those things aside, you have so much more time to, to enjoy what, what, you know, just think like things that people have enjoyed for, for centuries and thousands and thousands of years, like the most basic stuff that, that humans have always enjoyed. Yeah, when we're, you know, sitting, staring at screens, we're only using a small range of our senses, right? There are so many other dimensions of our senses and our bodies that we employ when we get outside and actually like move and, and do things and smell things and, and feel things other than the keyboard with our hands or, you know, the smooth screen. I'm actually a big fan on buses and trains of staring out the window. I get a lot of good thinking and ruminating done when I'm not uh, relying on, on something external to me for my stimulation mm. i mean cal newport's talking a lot about the uh the the idea that, that we just need space for our brain to to just turn off and and just think and work through problems and i don't know it's a very abstract leap but i feel like like the the lack of time that we have now to to talk to each other and think through things is probably one of the reasons that that um, Britain and America have become so so polarized in, is that like instead of thinking about things um, and and talking to each other, we're you know more interested in who gets the best slam on Twitter or just like <laughs> or just consuming stuff. And instead of like thinking about like what other people like, we're so immersed in the world that we, of like the twenty four hour news cycle that we don't really concern ourselves with what other people like say in our family or on our street or within our group of friends think, because you know, you're being righteous within your group that you find on the internet. Yeah, that's definitely true. Hmm. And there's been a lot of work done on the scientific process and on creativity. And, um, you know, a lot of the great thinkers of, of the past couple of centuries have talked a lot about how their best ideas come to them when they're not actively working on a problem. That there's, you know, this part of your brain that can be looking for solutions when it's not doing anything else. And the secret is give it a chance to do that where you're not, you know, expecting to push buttons and have, have something come out, right? Some, sometimes things can come out when you're not, you know, fiddling with the button so much. Mm. So when did you start to do, to write about this? Like, or what, what made you want to start to write, write your book and, and, and sort of like put, put these ideas down on, on, on paper for, for other people? Like, where did, where did that start? That's a great question. Yeah. I mean, it probably started for me in earnest when I decided to do this experiment where I just, where I chose not to use any digital devices for a period of about a year that, you know, I was in a special situation that I was taking a sabbatical and I was going to be able to leave a lot of my work responsibilities, um, you know, aside. Uh, and because I was doing that, I decided that part of the experience, the experience for me would be making time and space for everything else in life that wasn't staring at screens. So I decided that I would not use a cell phone for a year and I didn't use... Um, computers, or at least the internet, for about six months. And part of it was just as a challenge for myself that I felt like I used to be a really well-rounded person through, you know, the 80s, the 90s, that I used to have all of these hobbies like photography and being in a dark room. 
um, you know, going to bookstores and cooking mm -hmm. and that a lot of even playing instruments, making arts, that a lot of these hobbies have kind of been fallen to the wayside as I started spending more and more of my time looking at computers and being on social media. Um, so I thought, you know, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have this opportunity where I don't have to work for a year. What if I get rid of this other sort of, you know, invisible work that I do of being on the internet and producing content for, you know, social media platforms to profit off of. Mm. Um, so that sort of opened up this, this whole new window to me, this whole new perspective of looking on the, at the world where, you know, I wasn't using my phone for anything. Um, and once you put your phone aside, you realize you need all of these substitute devices kind of to replace it. Like now you need a map or an atlas to know where you're going. You might need a phone book to find the phone number of the restaurants down at the corner. You need an alarm clock to wake you up in the morning. You need something to play music on. Um, you know, there's kind of an endless list of substitutions that needs to happen. But as part of that experience, I mean, part of it was just the challenge to myself, knowing that I would be able to do it. Um, but the realization that there are internal and external uh, influences, that a lot of people just have this inner craving to be online and to communicate with other people. I don't have that quite as much as I feel a lot of people do, but that there's also this extrinsic pressure. You know, there are people who need to be able to reach you or who wants to be able to reach you. And it's a lot of, it's a lot of work to try and extricate yourself from all of that and change other people's expectations. Nowadays, you think of just all the apps that we're expected to use as a normal part of day, that there are people who clock in and out of their jobs every day on an app. You know, you'd have a hard time convincing your supervisor that you should be able to, you know, fill out a piece of paper or something instead of, of using an app. Um, so for me, it was born in this, this lived experience that I had of not using digital media and really finding a lot of uh, good coming out of it. But at the same time, I don't think I would be able to do it again today. That was in 2009. And, you know, my dependence uh, on devices and platforms has only increased, as has probably yours and most people's. Yeah, no, I can definitely, you could definitely say that. I mean, I was talking to um, earlier in the year, a girl who I went to school with, and she is doing a lot of filmmaking and sort of um, art artwork in that kind of area yeah photography and filmmaking basically and she um she was telling the story about when instagram first came out and when we were in school and i was like wow like that wasn't even that long ago like when you're really in uh -huh. the grand scheme of things like that the just wasn't instagram like that thing yeah. that that i don't know like the last week that i didn't check it um and that's not even the worst one but but just just Instagram on its own, I was like, wow, like that that came out when we were in school, and look where it's like, where it, that was like 2011 or something like that. It's it's like no time ago. Um, it's really crazy. But I'm I'm curious actually, what was there something that triggered that that feeling that you had um, before you took your sabbatical, where you wanted to figure out, or you you just decided that you were gonna take take as a bigger break from, from your phone and screen time as possible like was there was there a moment where you really started to think I need to do this or was there something that happened to you you read that that, that made you that like gave you that idea in the first place one of the key moments for me was probably that I went to a museum exhibit um, 
where they had a lot of correspondence of the artist Edward Gorey, if you know him. Um, and he had written a series of these beautiful letters to his mother that, I mean, they were just gorgeous. I mean, I, I had never produced any letters like this back in my own days of correspondence. But that sort of sent me on this, this track of realizing I used to write these really thoughtful, beautiful letters to people that were almost like, you know, exploring my soul in, on, on paper and then sending it to people that I cared about. And that was a moment for me that sort of started me thinking about all of the other things that I used to do, that I used to enjoy, that I used to be, I used to think were creative or artistic and that I'm just not doing anymore. And the more I thought about it, the, the more that there was. Mm. I mean, I guess, have you seen that film, The, the Social Network? Or oh. not The Social Network, sorry, The Social Dilemma. I do, and I always confuse the titles of those as well. I did, yeah. Um, I actually, I'm teaching a class now in fake news, which I've taught before, and I'm having my students watch and, and think about that movie, and, and seeing their responses to it has been kind of interesting. Mm. I mean, I definitely feel like like it really, it, it like when I saw it for the first time, like these were already ideas that I'd been thinking about, but just those, those scenes, you know, where they've got the family in yeah. the, in the, like the, the, the kitchen, especially the one in the kitchen where, where the, the mom takes the phone from her daughter and she puts it in one of those like plastic timer things um, and says, you can't have this for one hour. And within like two minutes, she's broken it open. Yeah. Cause she cannot handle being without the phone. And that's like, that was so real. Like it was so real. And the, the moments where she was sat down at dinner and they were all just on their devices. And you just think that that's, that is, is like, that's everyone's experience now. That's like, I don't remember. Well, I mean, like <laughs> I, I'm really trying to consciously not do it now. Um, and I feel, I feel a lot better for it. Um, actually. And like, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm human and imperfect and I still do it. But like, if you, if you find yourself, especially, like since since you took that that sabbatical or just like looking around and going wow we're all just on our phone like it's those moments are, are scary to me no absolutely yeah at the same time i do want to recognize that this this recent documentary is sort of an interesting uh stage in a conversation that's been ha happening for a long time that there has been criticism uh, over the, the course of the millennium that's been kind of gathering steam in which a lot of people have been asking similar questions about what influence uh, our devices are having on us as individuals, on our psychologies, as well as on, on our relationships with other people and our families around the dinner table. So that this conversation has been happening for a long time, but until now, it wasn't these people from the hallowed halls of technology that were leading the conversation. So that in the past, people were kind of dismissed if they asked a lot of critical questions, especially if they were from an older generation or they were digital immigrants. Um, their criticism of the, the influence of devices was dismissed as, you know, oh, well, you're, um, you're a Luddite, right? Which I take issue with in my book. You just don't like technology, you're afraid of it, or you don't understand it. And that, that line of defense has actually been very successful in silence, silencing a lot of opposition to and questions about technology. So the fact that it's, you know, the guy who helped invented the like button or Tristan Harris, or um, a lot of these people who are coming from these digital platforms who kind of 
know how the sausage is made and they're telling us what's in it, it takes on a new um, intensity because of that. But we can go back even further, you know, through um, the Luddite conversations of the 1990s that were happening. There, were, there was a, a movement of a lot of people to criticize the early days of digital technologies and robotics and uh, genetic engineering and all of these things. And those people were similarly dismissed that, you know, they weren't experts in these fields and that they were just afraid of something that was new. Um, but that, that conversation was also very intimately tied to uh, television criticism that was happening at that time. That a lot of the things that we're saying now about screens are sort of an extension of um, what people, the, the, the concerns that especially parents had about the influence that TV was, was having on youth back in the day. One of my favorite examples of this is, you know, the TV show, The Simpsons. There was an episode where uh, Marge Simpson um, criticizes cartoons for being too violent and uh, changes the nature of cartoons that suddenly it's not, you know, the cat and the mouse beating each other over the head with mallets. It's the cat and the mouse sitting on the porch drinking lemonade, like sitting on their rocking chairs. So of course the kids don't want to watch TV anymore if it's boring. And it sort of leads to this golden age in Springfield where the kids are all out, you know, racing soapbox derbies and uh, making things and they come home at the end of the day and they all sit around the table telling their parents about all the exciting things that they've done like outside instead of, you know, the social dilemma where they're all sitting around looking at their screens with, with nothing to say. Um, so I've, I found a lot of parallels between this like golden age of the Simpsons and, you know, this, this Springfield without um, cartoons and the pandemic as I was experiencing it here this spring. That I went outside and there are, you know, families all walking through the park with their dogs and there were literally kids with soapbox racers in the parking lot of the school near my house and skateboards and people running and I just thought, wow, you know, this is what the world could be like with maybe not no media, but with less media, you know, bring it on. I'm all for that. I mean, one thing I would say is that people were, were, were doing horrible, brutal things to each other before, um, before we invented the TV. <laughs> well, yeah. Unless, unless like Plato, you feel that even writing down things were, were a mistake. And that that's how far we have to go back before we're all going to be sensible, rational individuals. No more writing, no more, no more anything, just talking. That's all we got. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was, I always find that funny that Plato, like someone who's, whose books or well, his writings, yeah. even though he didn't write them down, are no longer, um, are no longer, uh, like he, he was against the idea of like the written word because he felt it would like screw with people's memory. I love that fact. Like the guy mm -hmm. who's like, no, probably known as like one of the earliest or oldest like philosophers and poets that, that uh, like writers will admire. And he was against the idea of writing anything down. That we <laughs> There's no small amount of irony there. <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. So yeah, uh, you, you have been living in, in Portland this year, well, I don't know how long you've you've lived in Portland. Maybe you're from Portland, um, but you've been you've been experiencing the the madness of of this year. Um, for people that don't know, and you can you can add or correct me uh, if if this is a poor explanation. But essentially, uh, several blocks of downtown Portland were taken over by Antifa or 
some kind of very extreme left. I say left, they're meant to be the 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 happy non murderous people. Uh, but they yeah they took over like downtown Portland. Part of Portland was uh, was on fire, um, and just the the general roller coaster of the pandemic and um, you know the the election that's not 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 over yet. Um, just is is all been. Um, like a really good exercise in, in figuring out how far along the like the, the the spectrum of slow media that that you should you should go like either you you just watch nothing consume no media no tv no news nothing and you could go about your day and it would it would all be lovely but as a as a good citizen you want to remain informed and know if people are you know starting their own little dictatorship in the the downtown of your city <laughs> but at the same time you don't want to end up as like the the, the person who can't stop checking Twitter because they're so obsessed with, with everything that's going on in the world. Like how have you found trying to navigate that in such a roller coaster of a year? Yeah, that's true. And as somebody who specializes in uh, news coverage of protests, it's been really interesting for me to see um, somewhat firsthand through people that I know who have been involved with the Black Lives Matters protests here. Um, and hearing how other people view the, the local events, such as yourself or my relatives back on the East Coast, who only really know what's happening through what they see on TV, and that that's just, you know, a tiny sliver of the event, um, that obviously, especially television, is going to be drawn towards the more dramatic, the more, uh, you know, visually arresting um, moments of it, and that the upshot is that, you know, there could be a thousand people who are silently protesting, you know, non-violently protesting. And if there's a guy over there who breaks a window or sets a fire or punches a cop in the face, then, you know, th that guy over there is going to be on the news. And that's going to be the, the takeaway image that most people take of, what, of what's happening. Um, so that for the most part, a lot of people who have been involved with the protests here are not Antifa to the extent that Antifa even exists as an organization. Mm. Um, you know, it's sort of a, a coalescence of, of movements um, and of organizations uh, who have obviously a lot of shared interests in social justice. Um, and that the reality is, you know, most of the people who I have seen involved with protests, whether mediated or unmediated representations thereof, have been kind of middle-aged parents who, you know, don't fit this, this example of Black black block, you know, uh, anarchists that, that most people are thinking of, that, you know, that group really is a minority. Um, that, you know, I know these middle-aged parents who are, who have been going out there that some people have been taking their kids because they want um, their kids to have an experience of what it means to, you know, be active in your society and try to demand change. And that most people who are attending these things have a vested interest in them being safe not only for their own safety, but perhaps for the, you know, the other young people that are there with them. Um, so there's a real divide between the mediated and the unmediated representations um, to the extent where, you know, some of my family back on the East Coast kind of are supporting the Trump approach saying, well, you know, there are these dangerous people out there and somebody has to take control of the situation, you know, that uh, these leftists are dangerous. And the reality is they're not as dangerous as as you think, um, that there's, you know, a minority of people who are 
pursuing the radical tactics. And that the majority of people are trying to rein those people in and say, hey, come on, let's keep our eye on the prize here and try to do something productive and not you know, get caught up in, in the anger of the moment. Um, so big difference between the mediated and the unmediated. But when it comes down to actually following events at the end of the day, um, you know, arguably following it on a moment by moment basis doesn't necessarily do you any good unless you need to make like daily lived decisions based on whether or not there's a march on this street or that street. So unless you're a local person, do you really need to know what's happening, you know, through Twitter or through social media? Perhaps you do, perhaps you're interested in, in it, but um, in a lot of ways, by following breaking news, we don't necessarily get the big picture. We're getting lots of little particular slivers of the picture. Mm. So how would you suggest, like, like, like so I've been trying to figure this out myself, actually. So when you say, okay, I don't want to have to rely on on Facebook and Twitter or, or, or my newsfeed or, or or my emails, or, or maybe maybe emails a little different, but I don't want to have to rely on this 24-hour news to find out what's going on in the world. Like, where, where can people start to try and figure out, okay, where can I go for, like, the, I'm going to figure out what's going on? Like, who, who can I read? Because, I mean, I feel like that's, that's becoming increasingly a problem, um, especially yeah. over the last few months. It's like, I have no idea who is an honest actor anymore. Like, not even, like, there's a few people I can trust. Aside from that, I'm just looking at being like, like you've got some kind of fucking agenda. Like you, you have, and it's really obvious from reading your work. One of the, the big ones actually is uh, Sam McBride. He's completely, you will never know who he is and probably never read anything from him. But he's, yeah. uh, he's the editor of, this, of a news, newspaper called The Newsletter in Belfast. And um, his, his work at the minute, just reporting what's going on during the, the pandemic um, in our government has been so unbelievably good. And just because he's, he's just written out what happened really succinctly and really like plainly explained what happened. And that's all. That's, that's all he did. And it was wonderful. I was reading it being like, wow, like, this is so amazing. Someone's actually just like writing down what happened. <laughs> I'm not getting like spin on it. I was shocked. Yeah. I enjoy The Economist for the same reason. I mean, partly because, um, you know, a lot of their, they had this external perspective on, the United States. I mean, obviously, they have a certain economic perspective, you know, on neoliberalism and capitalism and uh, all that jive. Um, but when it comes to politics, you know, I, I enjoy that they don't have a horse in our particular race. And I feel like that makes them a lot more reliable. It's tough, though. I mean, on the one hand, we're sort of we're so fortunate that we have all of these new alternative news sources, especially ones that aren't corporate and that aren't commercial. Um, but at the same time, a lot of our uh, legacy news sources really used to provide a service for us in filtering out a lot of information that was unverified. That, you know, when we only had three TV stations or, you know, maybe one local newspaper, that we knew that everything we was re that we were reading for the most part was true. But the problem was that that filter was maybe, you know, too narrow and that it filtered out a lot of truth besides you know, whatever was uh, convenient to the interests of that particular news organization, right? Um, so it's good now that we have this broader filter. It's sort of, you know, the, the opposite effect is that um, we're getting other viewpoints and we don't have to rely on, on journalists to sort of be the gatekeepers of, of what we get to learn about the world. But the filter is like too big, right? 
Um, so the question is, the, the onus is really on us with disintermediation that, you know, the internet um, kind of makes every individual responsible for knowing what their news sources are and what and who's who's make who's producing information and what their agenda is if they have one um and some people sort of throw up their hands and say well everybody has an agenda so you, you know you can't trust anybody you should just pick whatever confirms your existing biases um but the truth is like some people do have a much stronger agenda than others and there are certain actors who are actively trying to recognize their own agendas and put it aside and not let it influence their writing as opposed to embracing their agendas and you know using it to, to propel all the information that they share with us. Um, so it's, it's up to us to understand how news organizations work and why they work the way that they do. That's one of the reasons I've been teaching these classes in fake news, which are really kind of news literacy and trying to help especially young people understand, you know, what journalism is, that a lot of people think of journalism as a four-letter word these days. And as we know, you know, the public trusts the news a lot less than, than it ever used to, especially, you know, most news institutions. Um, but really that journalism, that what people criticize as the news or the media when they complain about mainstream media and how they hate the news. In a lot of cases, it's not journalism, but there are all these other actors out there um, who aren't really you know, living up to the standards of the people who brought us Watergate. Mm. Yeah, the, a journalist from, from the UK, um, Peter Hitchens, that I had on my show. Um, yeah. Yeah, he, he says that He'd written a piece a few weeks ago in his column in one of our newspapers, which is hilarious. I, I think he's brilliant, but I hate the newspaper. <laughs> uh, um, I, I'm very, very clear about my hatred for the newspaper because it's what my mom used to read until I convinced her not to. So she was laughing oh, that I was yeah. interviewing this, this columnist from, that, from, uh, from the Daily Mail. But uh, she, yeah, he, uh, he basically said that he thinks that not, nowadays Watergate wouldn't have come out. That, 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 that we, we would never have, have figured out about Watergate because someone would have reported it. Someone would have said, oh, that's just like partisan rubbish. And we would have moved on. The media wouldn't, wouldn't have investigated in, in the earnest way that they used to investigate. Like places like CNN don't actually have any investigative reporters on staff at all. Like they're not, they're not investigating anything. They're just reporting some stuff. Um, and for, for the ad revenue in between, um, mm. <laughs> like that's what they're there for. They're not there for journalism. Yeah. Um, but who, who do you go to? Like, who are your, your like go-to news sources? If you, if you want to, want to figure out, like say, say something big happens, like say, say the president of the United States claims that the election was stolen from him. Who are you going to, to figure out what is going on? I have a lot that I really like. I mean, probably on a daily basis, the stuff that I, I check out the most is the New York Times, that they really do a fantastic job. I mean, except for when it comes to coverage of particular political candidates, I think sometimes they have a little shading there, but you can take that into account and it doesn't you know, discredit all of the other amazing work that they do. Um, also here in the States, we have National Public Radio, which is the closest thing that, you know, we have to the BBC. Mm. And they do a terrific job. You know, they get attacked from um, 
by conservatives as being too liberal, but the reality is that they have just as big a conservative listening base as they do liberals, and that they really are so, they're actually so sensitive to that criticism of being too liberal that they probably stray towards giving conservatives, you know, a more than fair hearing in a lot of, in a lot of cases. Um, so those are sort of the two biggies that, that we have here. Um, but on a smaller basis, um, you know, I don't use social media so much. I do enjoy getting back to the slow journalism. Um, there's a magazine out of London called Delayed Gratification that you may have heard of that's- I have not, um, okay. It's run, it's run by a, a, an organization called the Slow Journalism Company. And they sort of stumbled onto this idea of slow news or journalism or media around the same time that I did. Um, but what I like about them is that they only come out quarterly and each quarter they cover things that happened at least the, the quarter previous, so more than three months ago. So for me, it's really interesting in the sense that not only do they embody slowness, but that um, they take a more measured view of what, what has happened in the past. Yeah, there you go. I mean, also, it's just beautifully designed. Um, they're famous for their infographics that they actually teach a lot of classes in like how to make infographics as well as in how to launch a print publication. Um, but it's like, it's not just a great aesthetic experience, but it's, it's nice because they, they, they fulfill that need of, that, of getting a comprehensive view of the world. So, you know, now is November. If they were putting together an issue today, they would be looking at everything that happens this summer in June, July, August. And, you know, June, July, August, we were kind of, you know, catch as catch can as far as news goes that maybe we heard, I heard a lot about the protests. There were probably things happening in the other part of the world that I didn't hear, any, you know, anything or, or much about. Um, so they sort of say, you know, this is what happened all over the world that you should care about this summer that might have slipped through the cracks. Um, and that they do that sort of follow up, you know, that we heard, we often hear when something's happening or right after something has happened, but then it disappears from the news agenda. Like remember the wildfires in Australia that everybody was excited about? That was what, January? You know, I remember in my classes in January, my students were like, oh my gosh, the wildfires. And now I ask my students this semester about the Australian wildfires, their eyes is gla glaze over, you know? Um, so, you know, we, we live in, breaking news tends to always erase the previous breaking news and we don't get the follow-up story. Like there was a earthquake or a flood someplace last week. Well, how are those people a week or a month or a year from now? We often don't hear what happened to them. So we care about the plight of all of these things, but then they evaporate and they're replaced by something new. So it's nice to have sort of that long-term perspective, like, oh, you know, all those things that happened in June that we forgot about for five months, well, where do, where do things stand now? Did the politicians live up to their promises that they were going to respond to the situation? Um, you know, here in June, and, uh, a lot of people were making these big statements for Black Lives Matter about how they were gonna change the way that they worked fundamentally to address the inequities, you know, and now, did they address those fundamental inequities? Somebody needs to ask and, you know, hold their feet to the fire on it a little bit. Mm. So anyway, so that's, that's one of my favorites. They used to look like, you know, New York Times tells me what happened today that I should care about, for instance, that, um, you know, uh, COVID diagnoses in, in the states were at their highest level this past week, you know, that um, almost a million new people were diagnosed last week with the virus. Um, 
you know, I need to know that now because it, it might affect whether or not I decide to get together with family on Thursday for our Thanksgiving, right? Um, but I also do need to revisit things that happened in June that I might have missed or, you know, that situations might have evolved um, and I, I didn't uh, get the, the follow-up on the story. Mm. Do you read, is there anything on the right that you would go to that you find like useful to, to look at in, in terms of understanding what, what so like the New York Times is, is probably considered um, by at least some people that I've, I've, I've listened to fairly left wing, especially the last few years on certain issues, I think not, not on everything. Yeah. Um, but is there some, some, someone on the right that you would read to try and get an idea of, of at least what they're thinking? Um, that's a good question. I guess I, I feel like there used to be sources on the right that I appreciated, like the New Republic that just aren't around anymore. People that I thought had interesting conservative interpretations of what's going on in the world that kind of defied the party line. But nowadays, I mean, this might not be in the, the case in your country or others, um, but here a lot of our conservative thinkers have just sort of are towing the party line and, um, you know, defending the Trump administration or the, the party leadership in ways that I don't find particularly helpful. Mm. Return to the New York Times, too, I will say that a lot of liberals have long complained that the Times is very conservative at the same time that the conservatives have criticized it for being liberal. And the conservatives have, have obviously been more successful in, in getting their message out. Um, and in addition to that, we can say that uh, to the extent that most media in my country are um, liberal, they're mainly social liberals and not economic mm. liberals, that economically they still very much support the status quo and don't fall into this uh, camp of radical leftists that we imagine, you know, has a, a strong platform in America because I can tell you they don't. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I guess uh, the, the, a lot of people would probably say that, that being socially liberal allows them to do and suggest horrible economic policies because, you know, they're looking out for the little guy when his rights are being trampled on. But like, if you want to give him an, like a slightly better wage, like, yeah, no, screw that. Um, I, if you were going to be cynical about, about why they, they lean that way. Um, but you said you teach a course on, on fake news. Uh, so what, what, what are you trying to like educate people on there? Because it's, and like, what do you actually mean by the term fake news? Because there's been like, a, it's, it's, it's quite a broad term now and can have, <laughs> yeah. have like a whole bunch of different definitions some of which I would agree with and some of which I'm like, mm. so like, yeah, what, what, how do you define it? And like, like, what are you trying to teach in that, in that course? Yeah. And that's all part of the conversation, right? You know, what do we even mean by fake news? A lot of people say that the term is kind of useless because everybody means something different by it. I mean, but for that, for that, uh, you know, people mean different things by socialism and people mean different things by lockdown. Right. Um, <laughs> but oh yeah. That, that, that I will fucking guarantee you is true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> So with fake news, I mean, my main motive is to teach students what journalism is and to kind of discriminate among all of these, these different sources, that there are people who actually have processes of trying to be fair and balanced and to maybe recognize their own prejudices and put them aside and have it not influence their reporting. People who are trained to recognize the difference between fact and opinion, which is a rare skill we have to say nowadays. 
Um, so for me, the, the idea of fake news is sort of this entry point to get students, especially to be looking more critically at their own news consumption and especially at their social media <laughs> news feeds um, to think about being more active uh, in, in seeking out news from good places instead of just expecting news to find them, which is a common phenomenon nowadays. A lot of, a lot of researchers have found that especially among young people, there's this idea that, you know, I don't need to find the news. If it matters, it will find me. And of course, um, you know, that, that leaves a lot up to chance and doesn't give you this comprehensive or credible view of the world that we like to imagine that it will. I guess a lot of people probably used to take a lot more intention with the newspaper they were buying. And it seems less with with technology with with a lot of things like you you find yourself just slipping towards the easiest option in a lot of ways like the yeah. most suggested news stories or or that that playlist that just pops up on Spotify instead of maybe you know go into your your CD rack or your your records or your tapes yeah. depends on what generation you're from I still got all my CDs um, <laughs> but like go into there like having a look and like deliberately choosing something that you want and in the same way, I feel like news is, is almost similar. We're like, we've got, we've got to like rediscover the art of like deliberately seeking out like good, good journalism or good coverage of, of certain things. Um, actually, while after I, I forgot to mention this when you, in your last point is uh, the, the one, the one of the sites that I, on the right for American politics that I would tend to, to, to go to, um, not because I agree with everything they say, but they generally have a very well thought out and reasoned position is uh, the Daily Wire and Ben Shapiro. Because he oh, yeah. he's, very, he's very straight up and he, like, he's clearly a very like, economically and, and probably fairly like, socially right wing, more I'd say libertarian leaning in, in his social policies. But like, that's, that's beside the point is his stuff is always well thought out, well argued, well reasoned. And like, you can disagree with him but I, yeah. I, I can never fault his, like, his, his, his presentation of, of, like, the conservative argument for things. Like, he'll, 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 never, he'll never just make, like, a flippant argument. He'll, he'll like, lay it out, um, which I really enjoy. And it's, it's very, I find it very helpful um, in trying to, trying to understand, like, what, what the right would be, would be thinking in America rather than just um, Fox News, which is just, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it is where a third of Americans get the majority, if not all of their news. There are some people who all of their news comes from either Fox News or talk radio. And again, they're, they're not reading Ben Shapiro or Andrew Sullivan, alas. Yeah. I mean, I guess I feel, well, Fox is, is kind of an exception because they're the only like right wing as such, like major news network. I know MSNBC are trending that way, but they're not, they're not Fox News in their very open and outright thing. And I guess that the, the the reason for the, like the their success is just because that that side of the market is isn't isn't exactly very diversified in terms of of TV news stations anyway. And that's probably because Roger, um, oh, what's his name? Who was the Ailes. guy? Ro Roger Ailes. That's it. He 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 got the him and Murdoch have sewn up that market. Like the he, there's no bigger brand in in well, I mean, I think Rupert Murdoch's going to get a shock very soon. Um, because of his uh, the way they've they've portrayed the the current election debacle, oh, yeah. I think he's going to get a serious. Like you could see the way the wind was blowing, and he just <laughs> went, "Let's just go with the liberal media." 
and um he's getting a lot of hate for it and i think they're gonna get <laughs> i think they're gonna get a big shock but like their their viewing numbers are so tiny compared to what some of the youtube news shows will pull in now so i like i feel like the, the we i think we overestimate the the importance of that legacy media um because like the they're like the the main shows on on like cnn or or um msnbc they're getting like 100 150,000 people watching and like uh, channels like um like the young turks on the left or uh, say like stephen crowder on the on the right they they're pulling in like they've both got 5 million subscribers on youtube like it's just i think i think we underestimate like the influence that that has nowadays like we just see it as like oh it's just youtube but more people are watching that than are watching like the major news networks which i think says yeah. something about them <laughs> Yeah, YouTube is, a, a lot of people name it as a growing news source, although, of course, it's a platform, and it depends, you know, who you're following. Are you following Kreider, Young Turks, or, mm. or whoever on YouTube? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that's something to, to keep an eye on, and it's only going to change that, you know, genera genera generationally, we're all living in very different news worlds these days. Most of my students get their news from apps, including the Daily Mail app is very popular among teenagers right. in, in America for some reason. And, you know, I was kind of surprised by this. I was like, you mean the Daily Mail? The Daily Mail? <laughs> Why are you getting your news from the Daily Mail? But um, Well, I mean, they have a really, really, really full and trashy, like, celebs section. Like, it's the, yeah. the, they, they have all, the, all the, the coverage about stuff about celebrities that no one actually cares about. But apparently yeah. a lot of people do. <laughs> um, but, like, yeah, that, 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 that might be the appeal there. But yeah, sorry, to, to, to sort of move towards wrapping up here, um, yeah. how would, like, if you could give, like, a few pieces of advice to people who, who would like to change their, their relationship with, with, the, with digital media and with media generally, like, what would you suggest they, they do to try and, like, take a break or step away from, from like, what they're consuming now and, and what to fill that void with? Um, because that's that's often the hardest part like it's easy to say i'm going to stop doing this but if you feel you need or want to be informed like the difficult part is often like replacing that with something better so like what, what yeah. would your advice be to people no that's awesome it's so true it creates a vacuum that i've a i've actually had my students in many of my classes do it at assignments where they unplug for a day and i've called it things like unplugging or digital detox and in a lot of cases it just like created this void where you know, they knew what they weren't supposed to do all day, but they didn't know what else to do in its place. And that's one of the reasons that I got into the idea of slow media. Instead of saying, you know, you can't use digital media today. I said, you can use analog or print media today. You can play your trombone or your piano. Um, you can make art. You know, you just can't do it digitally. But, you know, you can go to the museum. You could go outside and play basketball. You could walk in the woods um, so that... You know, by preparing people for it, that A, they're not just going cold to Turkey, um, and B, that they're informing people in their, their network that they're not going to be available for a day, that that also helps. Um, so that especially a lot of young people worry about what they're missing if they go offline for a day. Um, but the reality is that they usually don't miss anything. You know, we always think like, oh, we might be missing something, but, uh, you know, eventually we find out that we're not. Um, but if we let our friends know that they shouldn't be contacting us through digital media, that we're not available for even just that one day, then a lot of times that can set a better expectation. 
and especially parents too. I mean, this is a concern a lot of college students today have is that their parents expect to be able to reach them all the time and it gives their parents this sort of false sense of security. Um, but the reality is, you know, being able to reach your kid on the phone doesn't necessarily mean that you know where they are or what they're doing, or even if that they were in danger, that there's necessarily anything that you could do to help them. Um, so that's, you know, for the college students, for the adults among us, um, I would recommend the word that we've used a few times here is being more intentional in your media use. Don't expect news to just find you. Be very careful about how you curate your social networks. Um, that you, you know, make a point of getting some reliable sources into your Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever it is that you use. Um, and that you probably don't need alerts on your phone. So to this extent, I, I do subscribe to the idea that you should check, um, check the news a couple times a day at best, but you don't necessarily need to be you know, following it every single minute if only because it's an inefficient use of your attention and kind of distracts from your ability to immerse yourself in and enjoy other activities. I could not agree more. <laughs> to take the apps off your phone, check your, check your news on your computer. That's what I did. Yeah. So easy. Like it's yeah, it really helped like a lot. I just, yeah, I'm not on my phone anywhere near as much or at least not for social oh, media. Good to hear that worked for you. Hmm. Yeah, like it's, it's such a simple thing. You just take the app off your phone. Like you could still go on the, the browser and do it, but I don't, um, yeah. unless I really need to. But like when you really need to check Instagram. But yeah, um, Jennifer, this has been, been a pleasure. Um, do you want to plug your book before we finish? Oh, sure. Slow Media, right. Why Slow is Satisfying, Sustainable, and Smart. Perfect. I will put the link in the description below. But thanks a lot. It was, uh, yeah, educational and a lot of fun. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. Until next time, thanks for listening.